My name is Elaine, and I'll be your tour guide through South Central Los Angeles. How to survive the South Central? A place where busting the gap is fundamental. No, you can't find the shit in a handbook. Take a close look at a rap crook. Rule number one, get yourself a gun. A nine in your ass will be fine. Welcome back to the Before You Die podcast, where every week we watch a movie from the 1001 Movies to Watch Before You Die list and give you our opinion on whether or not it's worth your time. My name is James, and as usual, I'm joined by Gavin and Craig, and this week we're discussing the 1991 drama Boys and the Hood. Trey, played by Cuba Gooding Jr., is sent to live with his father, Furious Styles, in tough South Central Los Angeles. Although his hard-nosed father instills proper values and respect in him, and his devout girlfriend Brandy teaches him about faith, Trey's friends Doughboy, played by Ice Cube, and Ricky, Morris Chestnut, don't have the same kind of support and are drawn into the neighborhood's booming drug and gang culture with increasingly tragic results. Somebody must have been praying for that fool. Because I swear I ain't right for his head. should have blew it off. Don't say that. Don't say that just would have been contributing to killing another brother. And where are these fools? We've been waiting out here for almost an hour, you know that? Yeah, that was about an hour ago. Whoa, we didn't ask you that. Yeah, well, I told you. Good to be back, guys. Welcome back, Jim. I, I still back in the hood. Ill, but it's it's okay. I'll probably sound a little bit kind of gravelly later, but hey, we can make this work. Just adds to your baritone. Is it baritone? Baritone. Baritone's lower, yes. Is it? Yeah. I don't feel like I have a low voice. I feel like I'm quite high pitched sometimes. Booming voice. Especially when I'm excited. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Named after Barry White. Yeah. The Barry Tone. The Barry Tone. Yeah, the, Barry Tone. the jokes. <laughs> so, what do we think about the cast of Boys and the Hood? In the Hood. How do I say mm. it? Boys in the Hood? Boys in the Hood. In the Hood. Just say it as quickly as you can. Wasn't it? Wasn't it? Wasn't it? Wasn't it? Like that it's really like layers our competency around film <laughs> <laughs> it really helps it improve it <laughs> we know um, so yeah cast Let, let's talk about it performances let's think about that maybe first well I think they're great except for maybe Cuba Gooding Jr I don't know if I'm alone in thinking this but I don't think so Cuba Gooding Jr I don't know if he's ever particularly impressed me maybe in Jerry Maguire which he obviously won an Oscar for but maybe that suits him but even in this, you kind of got the cheese factor from him. He was a bit like a bit of slick. But even then, I didn't even buy. I didn't particularly buy how slick he was when he was kind of trying to chat up um, Brandy at the party. the party. And then it was hard to buy him being a tough street kid as well with Doughboy and Ricky. So I don't know. It was one of those things where I'm kind of thinking, is that done on purpose? Because in a way, he's not meant to fully fit in with Ricky. But Furious Styles would, you know, like Fur- yeah. the, the impression I got was Furious Styles could hang with. Anyone really, he could hang with the street kids. He could hang with someone like Brandy, his wife, for example, or his ex-wife. He's fully able to, and then you can kind of buy him in both worlds. Whereas I couldn't really buy Cuba Gooding Jr. in any particular world. I think as a as an arrogant sports person in Jerry Maguire, he works, and that's why maybe he got the role of O.J. Simpson in this year's The People versus O.J. Simpson, the oh, TV yeah. show. And even then, he's not particularly good in it because I don't think he brings any kind of darkness to it. And maybe that's why I don't think there was a lot of darkness to it. Considering what his life would have been in South Central, like that's what the film is about. It's an exploration of what life is like for these people growing up in South Central. I don't think he seemed particularly affected by it. Maybe that's where it all comes down to. So for someone to be living in a neighborhood like that, I don't know know if he particularly came across as someone who was affected by it. So I think with someone like Ice Cube as Doughboy, he was perfect. But then again, you think Ice Cube, the person, lived this life, so yeah. it comes across as so authentic. So he is rough, he is tough, but he's likable. Like Even Morris Chestnut as Ricky, I bought him because he pretty much coasted. I got the impression he coasted because he had sports, but that made sense. And then because his mom would protect him from a lot of it and doesn't attack him, he has this certain kind of way of looking at life. Whereas someone like Cuba Gooding Jr.'s character, Trey, he should be... I don't know he should be more of an amalgamation of the two but i think he ends up in a no man's land 
He's quite. I don't know what the best word is. He's quite vacant in his yeah. the way his character is. Like he doesn't really go either way. He's very neutral. But I suppose, I know. Like I know that's particularly the point. But I feel like I don't see any part of his personality that seems that he would be dragged this way or that way. And I know you're meant to be constantly thinking, oh, will Trey go the way of Doughboy or will Trey go the way of Furious? You know. And but I felt like with Furious, he kind of juggles both. He still is a black man, but he still is someone who's not bought into the idea of being a gangster, being in the hood. Whereas Trey, again, even at the end of the film, I still felt like he's still kind of in no man's land. So that's what, but I don't know if that's because of how it was written, they wanted that ambiguity or whether Cuba Goon Jr. just wasn't capable of actually bringing that to the role. I liked, towards the end, there was that really powerful scene after he's literally had a gun pressed against his chin by that awful policeman. Yeah. He can't vent, he can't do anything about it. Like, it's an impotent kind of situation. So he goes indoors and he's like, he just freaks out and he's crying. He's like swinging in, in the air and stuff. Um, I thought that was probably like one of the first times I saw his character do anything which kind of showed what he was actually feeling. Yeah. I, apart from that, he's kind of, you see all these lingering shots where he's just kind of quite silent and he doesn't really have an emotional face. Like, he just kind of moves along and says things that he thinks his yeah. dad should say. He kept putting the, <clears throat> pulling the same facial expressions and it was really, it was actually really annoying me at one point because I didn't, I don't remember noticing that before when I watched it. I, uh, in my notes as well, I wrote down that he just wasn't convincing as a, yeah. that type of character. He seemed too clean or too, too like well, uh, no, I was going to say not well raised, but he seemed like too prim and proper or something for that a neighborhood. And it doesn't the thing seem is, like I know what you mean about does. him being too prim and proper. I don't think you're wrong, yeah. but I don't just don't think furious like judging by his character yeah. he wouldn't have grown up the way he did or kind of had, hold himself the way he did i think with fury styles raising him mm. you know i just i think fury styles has this idea of what you should be and but, but he kind of was neither here nor there yeah which is i know that's a problem with a lot of coming of age films that people say you need to have blank canvas that you can project yourself onto but i felt like this was almost too blank and because of that you're neither projecting liking, dislike, anything onto him, really. And you kind of... I started projecting more onto someone like Ricky or mm. projecting more onto Doughboy. I yeah. think if... For it this way, like, you know both characters die, Doughboy and um, Ricky, by the end of the film. I know Doughboy dies off screen, but that affects the viewer more, I'd argue, than if Cuba Goon Jr. was to die. Mm. I think, for me, the hardest-hitting death was Doughboy, and that didn't even happen. I, th- I think it was tragic that Ricky got hit and the way he got hit, but like I thought that Doughboy's death was really sad because his character from the beginning was just... He, he had a, a, so much adversity going his way. Yeah. Like, there was so much stuff happening to him that he couldn't necessarily control, and it was just such a tragic yeah, he was, story. And he was a good good person. Yeah, he was uh, a I mean, product of that. Of that uh, part of his environment, yeah. yeah. But yeah, it's funny, Jim, I'll tell you this though, Ricky must have learned nothing in American football. Wouldn't he zigzag? <laughs> just straight line <laughs> running, like just Forrest Gump in that year. Like, that was always going to be bad news. Yeah. But um, no, I think I think you're right. I think the characters around Cuba Gun Jr. is what really makes this film memorable. I don't think anyone yeah. remembers any time you're thinking, oh, do you know what the best thing about that was? Was Cuba Gun Jr. I don't mm. know. Trey. Yeah, Trey, sorry. Yeah. I, I don't think any of the characters were outstanding. I think that they all had something about them which wasn't necessarily good, but they also had things which were were good as well. So like it was, there was. I think the characters were quite well written. Again, apart from Cuba Gooding Jr., who was very blank, but he his character only became a character. I think at the end, mm. he couldn't be. There was physically no way for him to be that blank slate. He had to be like he had to do something about it. And even when he could do something about it, he didn't do something about mm. it. Uh, he tried but, to, and then. But by not doing something about it, that was when he finally did make a choice. Yeah. And that was why he straight true, the yeah. cycle. Like, yeah. Yeah. Increase yeah. the peace. But yeah. again, I think, like I said, I think with Cuba Gun Jr., it, it's fine that I suppose he is that blank slate. I just wish there was more personality to him because it's hard to it's hard to root for a blank slate, you know, you know. Mm. And he is he is our eyes into this world, and I just think maybe make him a little bit more. I don't know, relatable, likable just yeah. interesting that would might have made his character better now don't get me wrong i love doughboy i loved i even love ricky even though ricky in his own way was a little bit of a blank slate but i could kind of buy it a little bit more yeah. it'd be so blank i love um what was the kid's name uh little oh, chris little chris yeah, yeah i love it. he was a great character even though he's just a, a second probably almost tertiary character yeah. like he's a because he's always with the group and i think he adds a lot like you can see so in some scenes 
that he doesn't really want to be part of this like he's just happy to be yeah. with his friends he doesn't want to well, be I think the play. fact that he ends up in a wheelchair has changed his thinking and yeah. perspective on things which comes up because he says do you believe in God Yeah. and Ice Cube says no I don't believe in God and he tries talking to I, can't, I don't know who the other character is actually cause I don't think they ever I think his name is mentioned once and I remember thinking throughout the film trying to find his name I was like looking on IMDb yeah. and stuff and he's not mentioned um, is he the guy with the pacifier yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I'm sure they say his name like once when they're at the table at the party in the beginning of the movie but I can't remember what his name was and I I, I, I couldn't figure out because I actually I, I like I liked Chris as well I thought, that, yeah. I thought he was pretty cool tertiary character as well I think he just brought something different to all the other characters but that's what was good I suppose that's mm. everyone has a group of friends and not everyone is the same not everyone has the same sense of humor not everyone has the same thoughts and feelings and I think they captured that well Yeah, I think they just captured it well in general I don't think it was. I think it was one of the most non-judgmental films I've ever seen about what it's like to grow up there yeah. like at the end of the day like Doughboy is a drug dealer and Doughboy has killed people but there's nothing but affection for him coming from the director or from the screenwriters or mm. for even from the audience. And that's because you're not seeing him as a gangster. You're not seeing him as someone who kills people or someone who just got a prison. You're just seeing him as Doughboy. You're seeing him as the person he is. Yeah. He's just a product of his environment, yeah. I think. And I, well, I definitely don't think the mum had, had any positive influence on him and even though not, like no. he did he, he still loved her and he still loved his brother but there was a very throwaway line towards i think it was kind of halfway through where they said that i think someone was even asking why why did she hit you kind of thing and there's like a little throwaway line about how there's two different fathers involved mm. there and that was i guess part of the influencer of why the yeah. mom was pretty much awful to him but lovely towards towards um this this amazing football playing prospect yeah. son yeah. as opposed to like Doughboy who's kinda he's just I don't know, he doesn't really have the same level of opportunities but he has a good heart and mm. he's that's constantly being hit by all these external factors. And he's a protector as well. Like he loves his entire social sure, group. Good friends, he loves yeah. his friends. He and you can see he still loves his mum and he he's, he cares and he thinks from a caring point of view but he just just doesn't work out for him, and that's why I find. And that speech at the end, just before it kind of, it's at the very end. He says that he, he there's no nothing on the news about the death yeah. of his friend, of his brother even. Sorry, but there's stuff about there's news from another country that he doesn't even know about. No one seems to care about us down here, or no one knows what's going on yeah. down here, or don't want to know, or don't want to know. Mm-hmm. And that that was like that was heartbreaking. Yeah, and you guys see like the. For the first time as well in the film, you can see like kind of tears in his eyes. Even after Ricky gets killed, he's not showing any real emotion. Like he just kind of goes numb almost, and then he brings the body home after he gets shot, and all he gets is like uh, blame from the mother and and she the full wife out attacks like, him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, even though it was like in it like indirectly, it was kind of it, I wouldn't say it was his fault, but he his actions led to Ricky getting shot because he was the one who pulled the gun on the. The guys, in mm. the, in but the, he was doing it to protect Ricky. He, he was doing yeah. to protect Ricky, but if he hadn't have pulled the gun and if he hadn't have like elevated it, elevate the situation, would that mm. have happened? Mm. But again, like product of your environment, mm. you know. <laughs> but that's it. Yeah, exactly. Like when I, that's what I kind of like about it because I know you're, what you could say you could blame this, but then would you blame then what happened in five years ago, five, ten years ago? Because he was yeah. always protecting Ricky. Maybe if he didn't get that ball that time maybe he said I'm not going to protect him anymore I just get beaten up for nothing but yeah. because he do you know like he, he went out his way to do these things exactly you know so that, that yeah. was another shocker as well at the end just before Doughboy shoots some of the people actually the, the people that he shoots none of those were the ones that fired the gun that that fourth person was actually like wasn't part of that group at that time and you know the guy that leans up Mm. and just before that kind of scene happens there's a there's a lingering scene almost like where the three of them are sitting around outside a i think it's a a, but mcdonald's or something and they're just talking about their their day and and their life and there's so many parallels between what they yeah i love that day it's like they're the same kinds of people. They're like mm-hmm. they are. They have the same interests. They have the same things that they're doing. I'm gonna go and see my girl tonight, kind of thing. And they have a banter, which is kind of quirky and endearing, and it makes you realize how futile the whole cycle is. Because yeah. they're the same kind of people, and they're they're just it's like violence feeding violence. And I think mm-hmm. that's what Furious was trying to beat out of um, Cuba Gooding Jr.'s character trait. Yeah. 
um, to kind of get him to break that cycle and be something else and not be murdered by his own neighborhood kind of thing. Yeah. yeah, and you see like how indifferent they are as well to what had gone on during yeah. like they killed somebody earlier or they were accomplices to killing yeah. somebody earlier in the day. But now they're just sitting outside a diner. Eating fries. Eating fries. Having a burger. Talking about what they're going to do later mm. on. Like it's, it, it just, I suppose, highlights like how kind of like that cycle, as you're saying. It's just how desensitized you can yeah, be. Yeah, completely desensitized to it. But that's what I, I really like about um, the speech, remember, where they go to Compton and he mm-hmm. shows them the billboard and they, he yeah. says, what is this? And he talks about gentrification and how the only way we're going to get any further is by working together. But because they're so divided, we're going to kill each other. But that's what people want because it's one less problem for them to worry about. And even during that scene, Trey and Ricky are looking over their shoulders because a massive group of, of people their age are a little bit older and they're saying, oh, look. Keep her, let's keep our distance but Furious knows like well, look we're no different we're, yeah. we're a couple of neighbourhoods away from where I grew up from where they, they grew up so what's the big problem here he yeah. doesn't see the difference there and I think that's what he's always trying to instill in Trey because he even says it's not remember he says something like about shooting someone he says you shot him should have shot him in the head and he said it's not going to help just killing more black yeah. people and he yeah. kind of knows that I think he understands the importance of working together and I think that's yeah. why Furious is such a massive influence on the film as well. He has a very a very broad perspective. Like, he doesn't think about the, the small situations. He thinks about why that's happening. And mm-hmm. I think that gentrification speech is a good testament to that. And I remember when I first saw that film, when he gets out of the car and, like you said, the the other two are looking over their shoulders saying, oh, sure, we should get out of here. Like, this is probably mm. going to get killed. Uh, and then people start gravitating towards them and and I thought oh crap this is it like this is clearly going to be a point in the film like a lot of films do where the mentor figure gets killed because he's trying to give a message that then Mm. the junior character Mm. picks up and takes on but it takes a different turn and it's almost like a unified congregation different demographics and yeah generation yeah yeah, the old guy who blames that kind of younger gangster type and which Furious then kind of steamrolls over and says look it that's not the case like why why does this person have this gun in the first place we don't have the the, the sufficiency to be able to produce guns mm. bring drugs in like that's all done externally and then you also have like the other groups like the families like there's a couple there i think i can't even remember i think one has a kid with with a so it's a whole mix and it's like a unified a message it's like you we need to all unify and rally together yeah. because we're killing each other like and they want us to kill each other that has yeah. been a criticism of the film, though, how messengy, mess, messagey, for want of a better word, it can be. Is that a problem for you? Uh, no, not at all. I, I thought the film was pretty spot on. Like, the, <clears throat> like obviously, I never lived in uh, Compton or South Central or any of that, but like we came from a rough enough neighborhood ourselves, like, and you yeah. know that it's not. Like, I, I see a it's lot. It's not of, as black and white as... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and the, there's a lot of parallels, like, of what happened to these guys to what would, like, have happened to us growing up and, like, things that you see um, happening, like, in places like that. And um, the... Uh, like, I thought it was done really well. Like, the, the just the, the conversations between the characters was very... was It's stuff that I could relate to. And the, the also the message, like, that Furious was trying to give to Trey and all the other kids, like, you know, kind of... He saw the bigger picture... But you could also understand why the kids don't see that because of the the people that they're around all the time. Like they don't have a chance to to get out of it unless they make that choice themselves. And even some of the conversations that they had around, like at the party, where they were talking about it, it's very culturally like for the time, the nineties, they were talking about AIDS and like um, yeah. your man didn't know what it was or how he could get it, and he was like, you know, can can you really get that like mm. from letting them suck your dick? But <laughs> 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 he genuinely didn't know because yeah. there was no education around it at the time. But I can remember talking about things like like not AIDS, but like things like that when I was a kid that you just not fully understanding, but yeah. kind of everyone, will, people around you will either fill you in and literally how you're learning is yeah. by learning from not from teachers or because there was no internet, you're learning from your peers. Exactly. And if your peers aren't going to be the people that are going to lead you in a positive way, they're going to lead you in a negative way, they're going to lead you in the wrong way. It just so happens that someone like Furious is there for them. Mm-hmm. What about you, James? Do you think it's too messy? Or I think it's quite, there's, a, there's, a, there's a big glaring because it's starts in the 80s and it and then it, then it kind of moves forward to the 90s when they were growing I think it's like 1984 at the beginning and then yeah, 91 90s afterwards yeah um, and I think at the beginning it, there's a there's a big kind of statement anti-Reagan statement 
and a lot of media, especially when it came to this, like I mean, if you look at Eddie Murphy, for example, he was massively anti-Reagan. And I didn't realize that. I went back and watched some of his old Saturday Night Live sketches. Man, he, and he didn't, he didn't kind of make it a subtle thing. He actually turned that into something which was very much like uh, um, President Reagan is responsible for a lot of the issues that are going on, which are kind of there. And I think that is with um, the 80s kind of thing. At the very beginning, you have like, this, I'm, I'm trying to remember the order of it in my head, but there's like a crime scene and there's a picture of a poster of President Reagan with bullet holes in it and yeah. the crime scene's wrapped around it and there's a big stop sign which kind of lingers for a while mm-hmm. in the shot. And I think that that was a big message and I think that sets a, a theme for the rest of the film. Even even before that, sorry to cut you off, but sorry. like even before the title card, when it leads into that, there's a it's a black screen and it's you hear people you hear that crime happening like you hear the guy getting shot and, and statistics on top of it yeah it? then there's some statistics and then it, it fades in then to the kids like walking to the crime scene and the Reagan stuff so yeah it, it really does set it up I think it stopped it kind of stops a bit at least there's this punctuated point to the film I think the biggest point was the gentrification speech that was a huge, that was very preachy. And it could have, they, I mean, to be fair, it could have gone on for a lot longer though. I think there was a lot more to say there if they, if Singleton wanted to have made it into a big preachy message. Mm. But um, I think it just left you with just enough to think about and then mm. pulled you back into the film and then you carried on with the, the yeah. story arcs. In my eyes anyway, because I, I read, I didn't really go reviews really more so, just the impact of this and people have People have kind of said it's preachy, even in Don't Be a Menace, which I watched this week. Piece of shit, but that's neither here nor there. But I felt like they poked fun at how how many messages Boys in the Hood in particular put into it. And it kind of annoyed me because the way I view it is someone like Spike Lee in 89 or 88 when Do the Right Thing came out and with this John Single in 91. These guys weren't getting a chance that they were getting every day. These are people saying, I want to show a part of culture that's not represented on screen. So it's, yeah. if it's their time at the bat, of course you're going to swing big because they want to hit the home run. Like The thing is, they might swing and miss, and sometimes maybe they do in some in films or whatever, because I know John Singleton has, has a spotty record at best. But in this, I think he thought, this is my first time at the bat. I might not get another chance again. So I think going big is what he needs to do here. And I, I only appreciate it more because I taught a 22-year-old kid saying, I'm going to show people what I think, I'm going to put it on screen, and that's it. I just think it's an incredibly brave move for a 22-year-old kid because that could have completely backfired and it might have been preachy and whatever. But I just kind of... That's one thing that didn't sit right with me with um, the, the parody, what you call it? Don't, Don't be, be a menace. menace. I just thought, like, if that's one thing, you should, one thing to poke fun at is whatever you can talk about Cuba Goon Jr. only being like six years younger than Lawrence Fishman yeah, or whatever crazy. but I just think to say to attack or to make fun of the message that he was trying to portray I think that was wrong and I think when people do say it's preachy my number one thing will always be well if this is your only chance or what you thought might be your only chance to make that message you're going to make it as big a message and as loud and clear as you can so everyone hears it. Yeah. sees the opportunity exactly yeah absolutely what about Furious Styles? as a character then is he is he too preacher as a character or like i don't i think the film is fine but do you think he can be a bit too i i think again he's the kind of i, I felt at the beginning that, that he's a little heavy-handed with the so like the first time he goes to when he, his mom drops him off and he he asked the two he asked Doughboy and, and uh little chris to rake the leaves off the lawn and he offers him five dollars mm. and they say no and he has a little back and forth with them, but then he says, "No, it's okay. I'll get my son to do it." But he yeah. doesn't offer him any money. It's yeah. just you know you're you're gonna do this because I want I want to teach you mm. something like some of hard work. Um, so he spends the whole day raking the, the leaves and puts them in the trash bag, and then you see him going in and washing his face at the end. And then he's kind of sitting down, and he has him doing like weights, like little mini yeah. weights, <laughs> tiny weights. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but then it it cuts to like different. He asks, you know, what am I gonna do next? Or what the way he because he lays down the ground rules of the house he's like you know you're gonna clean the tub you're gonna clean the the sink and all that kind of stuff and he's like that that tub because you see him looking at it earlier and it's all filthy and i thought that was that bit kind of it was left a bit unanswered for me because furious is trying to teach him all this responsibility of being a man and you should have a like i I only have to pay the bills and put clothes on your back and feed you but at the same time like that tub was filthy so it was like why is he why isn't he preaching or you know practicing practicing what you preach yeah with keeping it clean himself 
and I'm wondering like what what's going on in his life when the kid wasn't there that makes yeah. him kind of neglect well, those sort of that's TVs. one thing I love about the character Furious Styles because you think during oh he's so right he's so right everything he does is so right he's always in the right and then he meets Angela Bassett's character Reva yeah. his ex-wife and she pretty much puts him in his place mm. and she's he's kind of like look I raised uh, my son and he says no you raised our son and you're pretty much doing what you're supposed to do yeah. don't be acting like you're the best so yeah. you do get the feeling that he needed his son in his life just as much as his son yeah, needed true. him yeah. and that's why I think uh, I think the film in general is a, is a huge love letter a huge testament to parents yeah. because if you see how Doughboy and Ricky are in comparison because of like sure put it this way of the two sons Ricky and Doughboy one of them is loved and is shared with love which one has gone to college I know it's because of his his athletic ability but he got over 700 on SAT yeah, he so he's that, obviously yeah. can work hard because he needs to get some and his mother gives him nothing but love and he's able to achieve these things not constantly but you're you're reminded a lot about how smart Doughboy is because he reads a lot and he knows about things so during the AIDS conversation, he's the one who knows about mm-hmm. what can get you AIDS. When they're talking about um, religion, he's the one who actually has re- answers that he's actually read about and understands, and that's why he has an informed opinion. Yeah. So there's obviously some kind of intelligence there, but because he has this hatred in his life where his mom just resents him for whatever reason, he does fall behind. And then you have someone like Trey, who's the perfect example of both parents pushing everything into this into this kid, and he ends up going to college. Mm. And that's why I think that's one thing that I love about it. It's such a testament to parenthood. And it has literally nothing to do with their where they're from. It's if your parents care enough about you and are willing to work for you, work with you, yeah. you can achieve most. You see a little bit with his girlfriend as well, Brandy, because her parents are, like, she's a Catholic. She goes to church every mm. week. You get that. She even says herself she won't have sex before marriage because she's Catholic. But that you can see she's raised with a lot of love as well. And she doesn't, <clears throat> you only see her with the group a couple of times, actually. She's not, you don't know how often she spends with, at the party she's there, but, um, well, she didn't even know the girls. I was just going to say, yeah, yeah I just, just remember that they don't seem to know each other at all. And she only seems to have a couple of people there that she does know. So, yeah, maybe she's in a similar situation as Trey. Where we, she does we didn't talk about the one, the one parent that we haven't talked about is um, the the crack addict. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he keeps saying, a kid just wander out into the road. Yeah. It just has two lines that she repeats over and over again randomly <laughs> to everyone. But, yeah, I think you're right about the parents thing. I think that's for me that was part, partly one of the most interesting elements to this film was how the behaviour of a parent is I guess you could say how the behaviour of a parent is specifically related to how a kid turns out yeah. when they get older and those influences and, and what it can turn you into and how in some cases uh, you can if you're a resilient enough person you become almost immune to that so like even though Doughboy was showered with negativity and criticism and and chastising uh, he still was a noble person a good person a good person who just became a victim of his own kind of I guess you could say society Mm. Um, and I just found that really interesting Um, but I thought that Furious was quite I think Furious seemed to be like the mouthpiece of the preach in this film. Like he, yeah. he was the one that was that had all these kind of deep and meaningful sentences and broad kind of perspectives that he was trying to instill in in Trey. And he was the one that gave the gentrification speech. Yeah. So he had like this n- level of knowledge which kind of really promoted the whole preaching aspect. Yeah, but, but I, I definitely think it's good to. It's fine to have the preaching though. I yeah, but I, I that's why I think it's so important to have that scene where he meets Reva for coffee and she says, yeah. yeah, I got this for you. And yeah, this is what you're supposed to do. And she really just says, look, what you're doing, it's great, but that's what you're supposed to do. So then suddenly it almost, I think it almost jealous him. was like, wait, she's right. Like I, mm-hmm. for 10 years, I didn't have him every day. I didn't have to raise him the way you did. So he suddenly sees the partnership that there was at, in place there. So when he gives out to her about buying stuff for Trey, where it's kind of like, yeah. suddenly he starts understanding that there needs to be a hardness and there needs to be a softness. And with those two, that's why Trey was able to become the person that he eventually became. And Furious kind of sees that. And I love that scene yeah. because I think in almost, without that scene, then you would think, oh, Furious Styles is literally this philosopher, philosopher prophet, hood prophet that is always going to be kind of never questioned and never at all challenged but when you see that it kind of I think it even jolts him into thinking now I know why I did this now I know why he's become the person I wanted to become the mum had an interesting story it's quite a visual one though one I picked up in the second time I watched it I've actually seen this film a couple of times but recently was the time I saw it 
at this age, I think. But if you look at how she starts, the motivations around why she's sending him to the father, the surroundings, the house he grew up in, it wasn't like super flash. And there was a there was an element of poverty there. But then when you fast forward seven or so years later... After she's got her, her master's and yeah, stuff. Yeah, she's living in... There's a scene where she's she's calling for the first... This is the, I think this is the first time you actually hear from her and see her since the 80s part. Yeah. And she's she's in this, like, sitting on this luxury sofa with all these fancy lamps, and she's... And when she meets up with Fury, she's like, drink your cafe au lait, and they're in, like, a really fancy cafe. Yeah. And I, just, I don't know if that was... If that's a bad kind of commentary on her, whether she had to get rid of the son to be able to do this, or, like, I don't know if that contradicts... See, she still mentioned that she had him at weekends, which is something yeah. you don't see. Yeah, I wish there was more interactions with film, Cuba yeah. Gooding Jr., and um, Reva because yeah. you saw it when they were kids and you saw how close he was to his mom mm-hmm. yeah. and I would have liked to see them as yeah. as him as in the older teenager because that was something I, I even questioned audibly when we were watching the film last night I was like who just drops their kid off and said like the, the reason she dropped them off was because they you know they wrote a contract with each other and that if he got into trouble again they could mm, go live with his father yeah. but I'm like who just who just says right you're going to live with your father. I'll see you in seven years. Um, enjoy. <laughs> well, I get the impression that eventually when she got to a certain level, she probably was saying, come move back with me, come yeah. move back with me. And Furious was against it and Trey was happy with his friends. Yeah. That, but that's an impression I suppose I gave my, I got myself. But but only towards the end of the film yeah. do you get that because you find out that he's going yeah. on weekends and stuff like that. I actually missed that bit. I didn't realise it was a whole weekend yeah. trip. So that's interesting. But maybe again, it could just be we're really only seeing snapshots. But yeah, I suppose you might be right. Do you think they do enough of showing him which of an impact Reva might have had? I know you're saying. I know exactly what you mean. Like, is there enough of her in the film, even as a presence on the phone or mm. in person with with Cuba Gooding Jr. with Trey? Sorry, where you get an idea of her impact she's had? Because I think the only time you really do get that is during the conversation she has with Furious. But maybe that's that maybe it's be, enough. Like I mean, it didn't. It was only because I hadn't seen it in so long. I I like forgotten a lot of it, and I hadn't made those connections. It was it was just because I saw her dropping them off, and the reasons that she dropped them off. Though I was just kind of like, why the hell did she do that? That's <laughs> like the poor kid. So uh, life is hard. Yeah. So so we we talked about cost, and I think like this is one of those films where the cost is essentially the story. Mm. So I think we've talked a bit about story too. What do you guys think about direction? Like, how do you think this film was directed? Particularly well. Particularly well. It's got, it's got a nice pace about it. I think he's... It's almost... I could see a documentary filmmaker looking at this and saying, oh, that was particularly well done. That's very authentic. But John Singleton growing up in it really helped kind of elevate this above what it could have been. I know the studio didn't even want him originally. They, he And his point was, I'm not going to have someone from Idaho or someone from Middle America come in and pretend they know what's South Central LA. So I think his direction, again... It was almost like point and chew. So he said, I'm going to get on the characters. He really saw the most important thing about it was the people because he, I think his whole thing was there's a certain way we dehumanize people that we don't understand or we don't know. And he was just trying to literally illuminate just how human these people are for their faults or for their positives. He wanted to show an audience that. And I think his direction was, that's what I'm going to do. The people are who matter in this. It's not about me being flashy. It's not about me. That's why I think it's such a noble film. And he, in a way, he's such a noble director because this could have been his one and only chance. And he said, this isn't about me. This is about what I want to do as a director. And I think that's why he was recognized by the Oscars, the Academy Awards. for He was give, nominated for Best Director at 24, which beat Orson Welles' record as well, which is insane. Because they saw just how much he was he was willing to put on the actors put on the characters put on his writing put on this setting it wasn't about the flashy shots it wasn't about overarching crane shots or tracking shots or anything like that there was no scorsese touched or spielberg touches in this it was i want to tell the story i don't know what about yourself james i i i, I really agree there i think that it there's i think the only time actually the only time you really see anything which is a what you would might even consider to be a dressed up shot purposeful shot is the preachy stuff whereas 
largely it was kind of character shots. It was group character shots. It was set in domestic close ups, close ups, like in front rooms on porches, in cars. Like it was there was in- lots of interiors there, and I think that was just part of that whole style you were referencing because mm. it kind of keeps keeps things very grounded and it keeps things very humanized and it keeps things very real and relatable as well because like we're sitting in a room together and if someone filmed us doing this it would be similar to how things were filmed in, in boys in the hood because yeah. it's, it's local and it's community related so yeah because he i think he really could have went for he could have went for a lot more action scenes say where they're getting chased or a lot more shootouts anything like this but a lot of it takes place off screen. In fact, the only time is when we see Ricky die, and then we see Ice Cube, and that's really it. Because the only other times there's two dead bodies. There's two dead bodies. And they both happen off screen. You know, there's not really that yeah. much insane like gunplay or violence. No, I know. And a lot of what happens is in the background. So instead, you see the kids are walking by, and someone gets beaten up while they're playing dominoes, and yeah. kids just have their back to it, and it's just showing it's a backdrop. That's all there is for these for these kids. That doesn't necessarily mean these kids will become that. Now, I know they showed then Doughboy actually becoming that later on, but you don't see Trey doing it, you know? Yeah. I think it's important that he, he does that, and I think that direction is why it's so such a really exceptionally well-directed film, because he's fully aware of the characters are important. What happens in the background happens in the background, but ultimately it's what the characters do and their motivations. And they might be influenced somewhat by what's happening in the background, but the reason it's in the background is for them, that's their life. It's in the background, constantly it's in the background, mm-hmm. so... He, there's there's a certain distance with the more action slash violence aspects to it. The the fateful scene where um, Ricky gets shot in the back. Uh, I think he gets hit in the leg and then the yeah. back. Um, you don't actually. I don't even think you see the gun going off. That you hear the gunshot and you see the physical reaction to it. And it's all slow motion. The sounds really kind of damped down um another example is when like it's almost a throwaway scene where doughboy is kind of leaning against the wall with his his friends and then there's that guy who walks past grabs Takes like, the chain and the, the the beating that occurs happens right in the back of the shot like it's hard to see who's yeah. doing what or what's happening i think someone grabs a, a <laughs> trash can yeah. <laughs> then you hear the police cars that kind of thing like it's um it, it seems quite disconnected but intentionally so because i think maybe singleton didn't want the the overarching message to be diluted by flashy gunplay and yeah, yeah. visceral explosions and blood and stuff so what do you think like the the actual so this this is obviously a big like there's a there's a broad message in this film about the culture at the time and like the the area that they lived in and like a lot of areas around the states at the time as well were were like this but obviously south central was a big one um do you think like it's an accurate kind of depiction of that era and probably some places now in the world are still mm. like that like um there was uh, i was reading something about um when this was released a lot of rival gangs uh, met in this like in the theaters um and like engaged in shootouts with each other like just because they both went to see this film and they happen to be rival gangs mm. which is like something you can see happening in the movie like when rival gangs come together which you do kind of see um that leads to the shootout of, or to lead that leads to ricky getting shot um i would have hated to have worked in that cinema that <laughs> particular cinema mm. just seeing them all roll up um because you know shit was gonna start mm. i think serious. um again i think the whole thing I don't think single well I think it is accurate because I know Singleton a lot of this is based on his own his own life so and, that's, and I think they shot it in South Central and they got someone like Ice Cube to be in it because he grew I know Cubicum Jr. wasn't particularly I, I get the feeling he wasn't from this from uh, New York I think oh right so yeah you can kind of, I think with someone like um, Ice Cube there is an authenticity then literally straight, straight away you're going to you're going to lend us some authenticity and mm. even with that singleton on top so I, do, I just think again he was just showing it was almost like a documentation he just wants to document this is what people are like so even though Doughboy like shoots people he's still what we perceive to be a good person but mm. we'll judge someone if we're, we'll judge someone if we heard on the news a man has gunned down three people and he only got out of prison recently we're not going to suddenly think oh he's a good guy but it never it never tries and sways you in any other way and doesn't say he's a good guy because of this 
he's still called women bitches and hoes but <laughs> we still think Doughboy's a good guy and I think yeah. that stems from the director saying look I'll give you the truth I'll give you the reality he does call people bitches he does shoot people he still does deal drugs but what do you think of him oh I like him mm. he, can, he looks after he looks after people he has, yeah. he has positive traits and negative traits and that's what I like about it because he's not perfect but I think his good Who points is. yeah and that's the point I'm, I'm, none of us in this room mm. are perfect I'm sure but like I find that interesting I, I, um, I, re- I read an anecdotal thing about how when the film came out some um, real life gang members were actually kind of upset like you know you were talking about how they came to, to there was possible kind of violence ensuing based mm. on them going to see it at the cinema yeah. but there was a general kind of level of criticism over how that element of the film was depicted and it being more cowardly which kind of is almost it is massively ironic considering the message is violence begets violence and that's not the answer and that's mm. not what this film's about but they interpreted it as being they didn't think about that they just thought about how it was an inaccurate representation of themselves being seen as cowardly as mm. opposed to yeah. oh we would just kill those people kind of thing it's just it kind of a lot of it there's a lot of life bleeding into art there and vice versa which I thought was quite interesting yeah. but that but like yeah. the, like the whole thing is with me with films I'm going to watch I want to take me away from my own reality or whatever and when it's something like this where it's not like a sci-fi it needs to be as authentic as possible and I think that's what they did I think they take away reality and put you in South Central LA for an hour and 55 minutes and I think they do it because I know I've, I've, I've seen watched some of Menace Society this week, I didn't get to finish it, but I felt that was a lot more. I seemed to enjoy a lot more of the the gunplay and the violence and the the gang aspect of it. And I know Colors, for example, which Singleton didn't like, and one of the reasons Boys in the Hood came about was because of it. I think they kind of reveled in the the gang culture. And the, but what they what they reveled in was the friendship, which is part of the gang. Like they might be a gang, yeah. but there's friends friends in it. There's brothers in it. There's it's almost like a family, you know, and I can understand that because they don't have families at home or they don't have the family they want, so they seek family elsewhere. So I think it works. I don't. I think I can understand why they might see it's cowardly, but that's what it should be. For John Siegel the day he saw violence as this either last resort or a way of protecting yourself, and I think it works. And I think it's important that when he when Doughboy when he shoots the people, a lot of the action you don't see him actually shooting the people. It's his face. So you're seeing his reaction to it. Yeah. So I think that's important. I don't. I don't think John Singleton at all wanted to create any kind of divide. I think that's based on, like I said, preconceived notions of manhood and masculinity and mm. what you would shoot someone. So I, I definitely think there's. I definitely think there's themes in it now which carry over. Sorry, there's themes from the film that carry over to now. Um, similar to how the thing, the horror of the thing, it taps into something which is a perpetual fear or a perpetual part of our existence same with boys in the hood there are still things going on which are still a kind of a fearful aspect like gun crime is is massive in the states like it's Mm. been in the media heavily for the last five years at least and it was always in the media before that but that's a massive kind of thing on everyone's radar and the other thing is police brutality and corruption yeah. like that for this me is pre rodney king yeah. pre oj simpson pre you know there's a it's a almost lot, prophetic yeah. it's yeah. like it, it it's kind of it's a timeless aspect and that that's a kind of a cult i think that's a, a fear as well f- for society because you want to you expect a law enforcement representative or someone from the law to protect you and uphold the standards if you're a law-abiding citizen of course to, to look after you essentially this it's a layer of of um, security but when you, you see a lot of news broadcasts about police beating the shit out of people um, you see videos where police kind of bend the rules a bit to kind of not show that they've made a mistake or anything like that um, and just straight out corruption you hear that a lot in the news mm. and that could be fear mongering of course but it's still testament but to then again I, that's why something like where uh, Trey has the gun held up to under his chin and he starts crying I find that fully believable because if you see now the only reason we're even getting this is because everyone has a camera or because it got dash cams that you have to have cameras there so i can assume a lot of what happens with the police back then people were getting away with it because there was no record so i can believe that someone like trey would get a gun pointed to him yeah i agree um i think you could easily see something like that happening and the fact that we couldn't document stuff like that so easily back mm. then you could get away with it it's interesting actually that 
that kind of stuff is becoming more relevant, well, not relevant, more kind of frequent now. Because more noticed. Kind of, yeah, more noticed. And it puts a, films like this into a lot of perspective now. And you were saying earlier that there was, uh, not that there was criticisms of it, but um, yeah, that there was criticisms that people were saying, like maybe it was a bit too preachy. But I think looking back on it now, like in 2016, that it's, I think it's pretty, it does a good job of sending the right message that anybody in a neighborhood like that, whether it's in South Central or Ireland, England, like anywhere in the world, it doesn't matter. Uh, you could you could live by that message. Like just don't don't be violent. Increase the peace. Yeah, increase the, the peace. Don't be an asshole. I think yeah. that people just weren't technologically equipped. Like I think now we're layered in technology. We mm. can capture everything instantly. There are apps which let you not even have to go into your phone and then kind of quickly snapshot snapshot something. That wouldn't have necessarily been an issue back then if yeah. everyone had cameras because it would have just been recorded upload it to a, a media site straight away boom and then uh, then the scandal starts and I think that's mm -hmm. why stuff is so massively in the press right now because people are just filming everything so anyway. yeah but that's what I love about this film that's literally those cameras didn't exist that yeah. movement didn't exist John Singleton wanted to document something and yeah. I think he did it particularly well it could almost be a documentary yeah, like it's exactly. so authentic okay so I think we we've covered pretty much everything that we can anyway in in an hour. So let, let's ask the the question: Do we think this this should be on the list? Start with me. Um, yeah. Without going into any arguments, because I don't think there's a need to. I think as a piece of film, yes. As a piece of cultural, yes. So 100%, I'll put this on the list. Definitely deserve it, James. Yep, I totally agree. It's not only a really absorbing film that you can get lost in and like you said it's just you feel like you're kind of transported to this part of history and part of the world massive cultural message messages actually some of which is still relevant today it's just a really excellent movie and i think that it should be something that people see before they die yeah i'm not going to argue with either of those points i like i really enjoyed it again i hadn't seen it in a long time but it's i think it's definitely a film that everybody should see it's a makes a good statement and it's it's a good movie to watch as well even for the the small flaws that it has it's an excellent addition to the thousand one movies list good awesome stuff. so it's going in it stays in yeah um okay so um i didn't i wasn't here for the cabin in the woods podcast uh yeah. really annoyed because i do like that film uh, but we did have a tweet from, from uh, Stephen listener on twitter Stephen. okay so what did Stephen on twitter say so Stephen said that uh Cabin in the Woods was an odd choice for the 1001 list. Um, I assume he means the people who added it to the list. <laughs> uh, and he feels like going in totally blind fundamentally alters the experience, to which I agreed. And you're yeah. one of the people that went in fundamentally blind, so... I did go in fundamentally blind. It's one of, like, I was, we were saying off, off cast that um, it's probably one of the three films I have which include Usual Suspects and The Matrix. So it's three, these three films I went into completely blind. Cabin in the Woods, I just saw the poster... And I thought, hey, it's a Cabin in the Woods movie. It's going to be formulaic. And I'm cool with that. I want something to watch with my with my popcorn. But I, I loved, I, I went in and loved every minute of it. I loved the genre flips. I loved the fan service it paid to a lot of different kind of horror movies, which I grew up with and I was enjoying at the time as well. I, lo I loved all of it. But I wouldn't say it's something to go on the list. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. And what did you guys say? You said no. We said no. We thought you would. So yeah. You thought I would say yes. Yeah. We um, thought you were all on this. Yeah. See, this, this is the thing. Like, the, every film we've done so far, I've loved. I genuinely personally have loved and enjoyed on different capacities, whether it's just enjoying, whether it's just, like, something to eat popcorn and watch. But whether they qualify for a list, which is fundamentally something you have to see, like a bucket list kind of thing, mm. before you pop your clogs, I guess... Is, is, an, is another thing. So I, th I think with Cabin in the Woods, it's, it's, it's a fantastic film, but I don't think it's necessarily important enough to make this list. I haven't said that, I'm actually going to try and watch Cabin in the Woods again, because <laughs> I love it so much. So where do your flaws come from that wouldn't put it on the list? Is there... Um, I, I don't think it was... I think it played it very safe. I think it kind of... But it, because it flipped genres, I think almost a couple of times, from horror to fantasy to sci-fi in different capacities... 
Um, I think it had to play it safe enough to be able to accommodate those genre flips. But it could have gone crazier. Like it could have, I mean, that whole scene where they're in that lift, they don't actually think that with what turns out it isn't a lift. It's actually just this kind of moving prison of, prison yeah. of fantasy, horror, sometimes sci-fi characters in there that are all nods towards your childhood's horror movies and stuff. That could have been played with a lot more I think as well the Sigourney Weavy cameo at the end was just thrown in there fantastic I have a massive massive crush on Sigourney Weaver. <laughs> but that kind of stuff like I, I don't actually think it had it made enough statements and it, it did enough for the genre itself or the genres itself to kind of warrant a place up there with things I think on the list there's all kinds of horror movies in there which changed the game changed the game and I don't think this changed the formula I think it just paid homage to it and it was a very lovely love letter to horror movies and I think that's what Joss Whedon does really well mm. um, if he gets a piece of material that he really loves um, that taps into a lot of what he's interested in he kind of flourishes um, but I don't think it was something that was super important enough to warrant that list so James it's all in a one list that's yeah. full house there then so we've had two full houses technically in a row yeah so the last one would have been heat was the last um that was the debate. That was, yeah, that was, Which Stephen also, by the way, backed me up on. So. Yeah, he did, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'd like to apologize to Stephen right away because I tried to do some commenting on our site around that. Um, oh, yeah. And <laughs> something went very wrong with my profile. So um, I apologize, Stephen, if you got some weird notifications around that. Yeah, James tried to reply to your comment and, yeah. and broke things. But that's good for everyone else. Keep commenting because we will get back to everyone. We want to have as much impact from people commenting and people giving their own opinions on stuff, yeah. which is important for our next film, which is... The Bourne Ultimatum. So this is considered to be the final part of the Jason Bourne trilogy, so the, the Matt Damon trilogy. There was obviously another one after that, which was the Jeremy Renner film. Bourne Legacy. Bourne Legacy, yeah. I'll probably watch the trilogy as well, so I don't know if you guys are going to join me in the whole trilogy, but I'm probably going to watch the trilogy because pretty much Supremacy and Ultimatum mm. happen simultaneously, so... Yeah, yeah I get time, time right. So I think I might actually go back and watch the first two again and then the third one again. Because <laughs> cool. it's, a, it's a one big experience, really. And what's, almost like the, an what's the best yeah. way for anyone to get involved in the Bourne conversation? So not boring, to, by the way. Born. born. <laughs> the born. So if you want to get involved in the born conversation or any of the previous... Did you say born? No, I said born. Oh. <laughs> any of the previous podcasts. You can find us at uh, beforeyoudiepodcast.com where you can leave comments on the website on each episode or you can find us at, at beforeyoudiepod on Twitter and you can also get us on iTunes or any of the RSS feeds that you choose to use or apps. Yeah. Before we outro this, did at any point during this podcast did I say did I refer to boys to men as boy? Sorry, I did already. <laughs> you just did it. I just did it. So there's this whole thing. I can't for some reason my brain does not allow me to say boys in the hood, and I say boys to men instead. And I was trying to ask, did I say boys to men at any point during the podcast, and said it anyway? Yes, you failed at the end. I failed, failed at the end. Did I say it? I can't. Remember. You didn't. I didn't. This say was it. your wooden arm. I could have just shut up. Yeah. <laughs> No I've got editing powers, James. I will keep that in. No. <laughs> okay, so for next week, Born Ultimatum. We will see yes. you then. Um, sorry, just an ice cream van. Fucking ice cream van. God damn ice it's cream. It's early warning system, man. <laughs>